I think there are or were members of this administration who saw an interest in pushing tensions between the United States and Iran to the point at which uh, military conflict inevitable. Why they believe this, I'm not totally sure. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, a podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Hi everyone, welcome to America Explained. In this episode, we're discussing the American relationship with Iran, a issue in American foreign policy that has a really deep history, which we're going to hear about today, because our guest is a historian of that relationship. And we're also going to talk as well about some of the contemporary challenges that are perceived to be posed by Iran and how the Biden administration might deal with that. As I'm, or as we're recording this, it's just a couple of days after the anniversary of the killing of um, Qasem Soleimani by America. Uh, seemingly to mark this occasion, Iran announced um, that it was enriching uranium again at a level that vi- violates the nuclear deal with the United States, and it also sees a South Korean tanker vessel in its waters. This is then an issue that's really going to be in the Biden administration's inbox as soon as they come into office, and that's why I thought it was really important to discuss it today. In order to do that, I'm joined by Gregory Brew, who is currently a fellow at Southern Methodist University and a deputy editor of the Texas National Security Review. That's a really interesting, maybe you can start by telling us a bit about the Texas National Security Review. I think it's a really interesting kind of newish publication. Yeah, well, thanks so much, Andy, for having me on. And um, yeah, to kick us off there, Texas National Security Review is interdisciplinary journal that publishes work by uh, not only scholars, but also uh, policy practitioners. It mostly focuses on issues of international relations, security studies, political science, but it also publishes uh, book review roundtables. It publishes works by historians, uh, other social scientists. Um, It it does publish uh, for quarterly uh, issues, but everything is published first online and it is um, open access. One thing that I really like about TNSR is the way that it brings history into conversation with policymakers. And I think that's a really good entrance point into our discussion today. So I think it's probably a pretty familiar idea to anyone listening to this podcast that from the perspective of the United States and its allies, Iran are kind of the designated bad guys of the Middle East. This is a role that they've been cast into for, for a long time. I wondered if you could start by telling us a little bit about the origins of the animosity between these two countries, Iran and the United States. Well, certainly. The traditional starting point, as you and most of your listeners probably know, is the Islamic Revolution of 1978-1979, which saw the collapse of the government of the Pahlavi Shah, which was, of course, a very pro-U.S., very pro-Western government, and the rise of the Islamic Republic led by Ayatollah Khomeini. In terms of the United States' relationship with Iran, a more exact pinpoint is the hostage crisis that began in November of 1979. This drama unfolded over a long period. It saw a deterioration of U.S.-Iranian relations, creation considerable animosity on the U.S. side. Um, but it also represented a decade-long buildup of Iranian animosity towards the United States, which really began with the 1953 CIA MI6 coup d'etat, uh, which occurred in August of 1953 and uh, saw U.S. and British Secret Service overthrow the government of Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh and put in place the government of Uh, So those two points, the coup of 53, the revolution and hostage crisis of 79, uh, are generally seen to be the most important episodes in U.S.-Iranian relations. 
Yeah, so in your own historical work, you've studied the period uh, in the 1950s, 60s and 70s, I think. So you, you went back before the revolution and before the hostage crisis in order to, to see what was happening then in, in American-Iranian relations. Could you tell us a little bit about what you found in your own work about what was happening during this period and whether you think that there's a way that this subsequent history could have turned out differently? So what I found is a relationship that is a great deal more complex than traditional narratives uh, often have you assume. The Shah of Iran is, of course, known as this stalwart U.S. ally during the Cold War. He's a pro-U.S., pro-Western monarch. He uh, focuses on modernizing Iran. He acquires uh, an enormous amount of American weaponry. He accepts assistance from the CIA. Uh, Iran during the Pahlavi period of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s has deep commercial ties with American corporations. So there's a very often this theme of, well, the Shah was the friend of the United States. He was, of course, put in power by the U.S. So there's this standard narrative of the Shah was the friend of the U.S. But what you find when you go into the documents, when you do a little bit more research, a little bit more digging, is a relationship that's a little bit more complex. The Shah was his own actor. Iran had its own foreign policy. It had its own agenda. It had interests which often clashed with the United States. The Shah, for instance, was very eager to have Iran built into a regional power. He was obsessed with the idea of Iran acting as a regional hegemon, of having a very active foreign policy. And so building Iran into um, an active regional power was a major foreign policy objective of the Shah. Yeah, and and that's, that's such an interesting point because... If we shift our attention to the last couple of decades, you know, in the, this period after the revolution and particularly the period in which the United States has been worried about the Iranian nuclear program, another big American concern has been about Iran's quest to be a regional power, right? And it, I'm interested in, in, in what you could say about the interaction then between this nuclear issue, which we, you know, we hear about a lot in the headlines. I think everyone has a superficial understanding of that, but they perhaps don't understand the regional dynamics which make the Iranian bomb or a hypothetical Iranian bomb such a perceived challenge to the United States. Sure. So the first thing to say on that score would be um, Iran has had an interest in a domestic nuclear program, a domestic nuclear uh, policy since the Shah. The Shah began to pursue a nuclear policy in the 1970s. At the time, this was mostly done for two reasons. The first was economic policy. The Shah was concerned about Iran becoming dependent on oil and gas. The second was prestige. Again, this links to the Shah's vision of Iran as a regional power, as a emerging state that could stand in parity with the states of Europe and the United States. And a nuclear program embodied uh, this belief that Iran uh, was growing past the notions of it being a third world country or developing country. Nuclear po- a nuclear program represented an immense achievement in scientific, industrial, and political policy. And the Shah saw a great deal of value in that. By a similar token, the Islamic Republic has seen prestige, value, political value in a nuclear program. Um, But this, of course, has come in connection to animosity and its its contentious relationship with the United States, as well as with U.S. allies in the region, most notably Saudi Arabia, but most importantly Israel, which is a state which possesses nuclear weapons, uh, albeit in a uh, sort of non-disclosed way. And given that Israel and Iran um, are often seen as being 
at loggerheads. There has been an interest on the Iranian side in constructing a nuclear program and potentially acquiring a nuclear weapon. Where we where things get a little choppy is with this issue of a nuclear weapon. There is a lot of support inside Iran for a nuclear program. Whether or not Iran wishes to possess a nuclear weapon is more contentious. There is evidence to suggest that the Iranian government began to seriously consider the idea of constructing a nuclear weapon in the late 1990s, nearly 2000. Evidence would suggest that that interest more or less went away in 2003 for an important reason connected to the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Iran had long seen Saddam Hussein's Iraq as, an, as a major adversary, so the U.S. invading Iraq and overthrowing Saddam, uh, Saddam Hussein's regime eliminated that. Since 2003, the consensus has been that Iran has the interest in constructing a nuclear program and the means to develop a nuclear industrial infrastructure that could produce a weapon. Whether or not it's gone far enough to do so is still open for debate, but it likely possesses the means to focus our attention. The interest of the United States has been to prevent Iran from acquiring the means to produce a nuclear weapon, because once it has that means, making that weapon is not difficult as the example of North Korea has been uh, illustrated. Now, you asked why it's bad <laughs> for the United States if Iran possesses a nuclear weapon. And I would point to two reasons. The general, the big, the first reason, the more general reason, is the U.S. commitment to nonproliferation. The U.S., the United States has embraced a general policy of discouraging states that don't already possess nuclear weapons. That includes the United States, Russia, Pakistan, China, Great Britain, France, Israel. Discouraging any states that don't already produce possess a nuclear weapon from producing one. The other issue would be that Iran, that the United States sees Iran as a source of instability. It sees it as a dangerous actor. It sees it as a threat to U.S. allies and partners in the Middle East region, both Israel and also the Gulf states of Saudi Arabia. U.S. Uh, partners like Egypt or Jordan. So preventing Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons, which would give it a great deal more regional power. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. I'd like to uh, just talk a little bit now about the very recent history of the Obama administration's policy towards Iran and the Trump administration's policy towards Iran. So I think as all of my listeners will be aware, the Obama administration, along with other major world powers, Europe, China and Russia, negotiated what's colloquially known as the Iran deal, uh, which gave Iran uh, significant sanctions relief from sanctions which had been imposed in pursuit of this deal. Um, in exchange for temporarily halting its nuclear program. And it's equally well known that the Trump administration eventually walked back out of this deal. The deal had been very controversial in the United States for a number of reasons. So some of those were to do with process. So the deal was never um, officially ratified as a treaty by the Senate. It was you know, more an, an informal agreement between the US government and, and the Iranian government. That, of course, is you know, due to the complete gridlock that's characterized the Senate in, in recent years. And also the deal got a lot of criticism for not dealing with kind of subsidiary issues to the nuclear program, so particularly with Iran's missile program. 
and its influence throughout the region as well. So the many Republican critics of the deal, when Trump came into office, he wanted to move quite quickly to, to withdraw from the deal. He seems to have been talked out of it for the first few years of his administration. But then he he um, he did eventually walk away from this 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 deal. This is something that we've we've heard a lot about in the news. I think that what we don't always read so much about, we don't understand so much, is that what was the Trump administration's broader strategy towards Iran? So they they pulled out of the nuclear deal, but what goals were they trying to achieve and how did they try to achieve them in the absence of this agreement? Well, that's a very interesting question and it, it can uh, draw a variety of different answers because while you are correct, the Trump administration was generally opposed to the nuclear deal. President Trump himself had expressed his opposition to it, his belief that it was, quote, the worst deal ever made, I believe is what he called it, essentially from the moment he took office. And then, of course, the administration withdrew from the deal in May of 2018, so about a year and a half into the Trump term in office. Precisely why this decision was made and also what inspired subsequent policy, most specifically what is known as the maximum pressure campaign by the United States against Iran, a campaign which has mostly involved economic sanctions, but has also involved uh, military pressure, diplomatic and economic pressure from the United States towards Iran. Precisely what this strategy is meant to achieve has always been something of an open question. The reasons for that lie in the rhetoric of key U.S. policymakers within the Trump administration. Trump himself, but more notably, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and former National Security Advisor John Bolton. When the United States withdrew from the nuclear deal in May of 2018, Secretary Pompeo gave a speech at the Heritage Foundation where he laid out the U.S. demand on Iran that would be uh, contingent on new negotiations. Here I would stress that according to Pompeo, the U.S.'s goal was a new nuclear agreement, a new agreement to limit uh, Iran's ability to acquire nuclear weapon. Among these demands were precisely those factors that you mentioned. The Iran had to rein in its development of ballistic missiles. It had to end its involvement in a variety of regional conflicts. It had to draw back its support for regional proxies, including the Houthis in Yemen, uh, a variety of Shia militia groups in Iraq, uh, and the regime of Bashar al-Assad in Syria. There were other demands that were made uh, in this list that Secretary Pompeo laid out that were generally agreed to be far beyond the scope of anything Iran would agree to in negotiation unless it came under such unrelenting pressure that it had no choice or that Iran would potentially pursue if the regime in Iran had changed. In other words, the U.S. policy appeared to be one that would place so much pressure on Iran that the regime of the Islamic Republic would collapse. And as time has gone by, a larger number of scholars and observers and analysts have come to accept that the U.S. goal in Iran has not actually been a new nuclear deal, but has in fact been regime change. That that is essentially the thrust of the maximum pressure campaign by creating so much economic turmoil inside Iran, by placing so much pressure on the Iranian regime that it reaches a point at which it can no longer function and that the regime itself collapses and is presumably replaced by one that is friendlier to the United States. I personally believe that to have been the U.S. goal, insofar as there was a broad strategic goal. I think, to get just a little bit more speculative, I think there are or were 
members of this administration who saw an interest in pushing tensions between the United States and Iran to the point at which uh, military conflict inevitable. Why they believe this, I'm not totally sure, but I, there are moments in the recent history of going back the last few years, flashpoints, particularly June of 2019, um, the assassination of Qasem Soleimani last January that you mentioned, these flashpoints which would suggest there are members of the administration who see uh, a gain to be had in escalating tensions between the United States and Iran to the point where military conflict, if not war, uh, becomes the outcome. There's been two contexts in which I've usually thought about the Trump administration's policy towards Iran. So the first of those is that I think it's interesting to think about analogies to some uh, domestic goals that Republicans had under the Trump administration. So for instance, think about healthcare. The The Republican Party has this goal of replacing uh, Obamacare with some kind of unicorn healthcare program, you know, that, that won't take healthcare away from people and it will get rid of Obamacare and it will cost less money. And it's kind of an absurd goal. It's a policy to find a unicorn. And but well, but that policy satisfies grievances that really animate both elites and grassroots Republicans. And I kind of saw the policy towards Iran in the same frame to an extent as well, that, that it was for domestic political consumption to an extent. Then the other context in which I, I thought about it was, of course, the North Korean nuclear program as well, um, where... And you know, you'll, you'll correct me if this narrative is, is too simplistic, but what I sort of saw in the Trump administration's policy towards North Korea's nuclear program was that we had this very brief period of fire and fury, right, where, where Trump was threatening all sorts of things towards North Korea. This ran very quickly up against the fact that there is just no military solution to the North Korean nuclear program that is, uh, you know, comes at an acceptable cost to the United States. And then the U.S. kind of retreated back to the Obama policy of strategic patience of not doing much about North Korea's nuclear program. The policy towards Iran, I think, is interesting to look at in this frame as well, because it really shows how the U.S. doesn't really necessarily have the power to uphold that goal of non-proliferation, which, as you mentioned earlier, is a very important part of post-war U.S. foreign policy. But it's not within the U.S. power to, to dictate what regimes like Iran and, and North Korea do, short of actually removing them. So the Trump administration's policy got caught between these, the, within these two frames, I think, of firstly trying to craft a policy that was politically acceptable to the Republican Party, but not actually been able to connect those goals to any realistic means that were available to achieve them. Yeah, I think that's a very insightful point. And I think you've gotten, I think, at a key reason why the Trump administration's policies towards Iran have been so confused, which is that the administration is made up of different people with very different ideas on what U.S. foreign policy should be. On the one hand, you have sort of an arc, a, a typical neoconservative John Bolton, who sees Iran as a strategic threat, is on record as saying negotiations won't work because Iran is an irrational actor and that the only real way you get Iran to change its behavior is force, coercion. Then you have Trump himself, who I think is, insofar as his foreign policy ideology can be explained, skews further towards the non-interventionist 
side of the Republican Party, except when seizing oil is uh, on the table. He's been very passionate about that. Um, but he himself has expressed skepticism with the idea, particularly Bolton's ideas, that a war with Iran would benefit anyone. For me, the moment which is most illustrative of Trump's position is that flashpoint in June of 2019, following Iran's downing of a U.S. drone, where apparently jets were fueled and a military and a strike against Iran was ready to go. And Trump himself at the last minute said no. And chiefly, I think, out of fear that the situation would escalate. And also, I think, out of personal political concern that a war in the Middle East was something that his voters, his supporters were just not interested. To get to your other point, though, I think there is an interest in the Republican Party based in what I like to think of as performative foreign policy. And that is fire and fury, the shock and awe, dropping bombs, firing missiles, illustrating U.S. power in the most visible, tangible way. I think the president has always expressed an interest in that side of the U.S. foreign policy. And the fact that that hasn't happened in a major, you know, uncontainable way between the United States and Iran, I think has a lot to do with luck. And a lot to do, and a lot to do with the fact that Iran's leadership sees no sees no gain in a shooting war with the United States or with the Gulf Council. Iran has been extremely careful since the U.S. withdrawal from the JCPOA, the nuclear deal in May of 2018, to escalate with what I would refer to as pinprick attacks and to always leave the door open to de-escalation and negotiation in the future. And in that sense, the regime, the Iran's policies have worked. Iran seems to be coming out of the Trump administration more or less intact. The regime has certainly been shaken, but it is by no means uh, on its last legs. Uh, the Biden administration has indicated an interest in rejoining the nuclear deal. Um, but I am relatively hopeful that Iran and the United States will rejoin the nuclear deal in early 2021, and that that will lead to a new round of negotiations, a new round of talks. Whether that produces a new deal to replace the JCPOA uh, remains to be seen. But Iran has succeeded, I think, in its uh, uh, attempt to weather the maximum pressure campaign, whereas the Trump administration is leaving office having achieved very little. From, from what I've been reading, I got the impression that they've been talking about a two-stage process, so they hope to re-enter the JCPOA, which, as you mentioned, is, is, is what's colloquially known as the Iran deal, and then they seem to hope to negotiate some follow-on agreement covering these other subsidiary issues that were left out of the initial agreement. Is, is that your reading on what they're going to try to do? And do you think that they're going to be successful in going beyond the JCPOA? Right. So the Biden administration has stuck to a position that it's held since the campaign, which is that the U.S. and Iran should return to the nuclear deal in terms that Biden himself, I believe, has referred to as mutual compliance. In other words, both sides return to the deal as it was originally written. From Iran's point of view, that means ending its enrichment of uranium, spinning down its centrifuges, allowing uh, nuclear inspectors back to sites that have become less accessible. Um, but from the United States' point of view, what it really means is dropping sanctions that have been imposed since May of 2018. And that specific issue, I believe the Biden administration has been keeping much murkier. If I'm correct, there have been very few references from the Biden team on whether or not sanctions will be dropped, which sanctions will be dropped, and how that will link together with Iran's return to so-called compliance. Whereas Iran, Iran's government has been extremely explicit 
that it will only return to compliance in exchange for the U.S. dropping sanctions that were imposed after May of 2018. So this could pose a potential stumbling block because analysts uh, have been quick to point out that the United States may uh, exercise a certain amount of leverage over Iran through these newer sanctions and that Biden as president might be a little bit less keen to drop the sanctions only to return to the JCPOA as it was originally written. So there may be a temptation to use the sanctions during these initial negotiations to draw a few more concessions from Iran that lay outside the realm of the JCPOA. This gets to the second question that you offered, which is, will the Biden administration attempt some kind of new deal that goes beyond the JCPOA? Here, I'm considerably more skeptical. The other demands that the United States has of Iran have primarily involved its ballistic missile program and its regional activity, particularly in Iraq, but also in Syria and Yemen. Iran has shown a willingness to restrain its nuclear program. I do not believe it will do anything that it feels impinges on its sovereignty or its foreign policy interests or its ability to deter attack from other regional adversaries such as Israel, the UAE, or Saudi Arabia, which means that Iran's willingness to negotiate around its ballistic missile program or its activities in Iraq would appear to be limited. So beyond a return to the JCPOA, beyond a return to mutual compliance, both from the United States' point of view of dropping sanctions and from Iran's point of view of ending its non-compliant activities, that to me appears doable as long as the U.S. is willing to drop sanctions. Anything past that point at this stage, I don't see as being realistic for a variety of reasons. But the most notable one would be that Iran entered into a deal with the United States several years ago. The United States then left that deal for reasons that I would define as you know, pretty, pretty weak. Uh, Iran, Iran saw that as a breach of uh, trust, the limited amount of trust which had been formed over the negotiating table with the JCPOA. So from its point of view, it has very little to gain by trusting the United States again. And then the final, the final point being that Iran's government is about to change. There are elections in 2021 that will see the end of the Rouhani uh, administration and the rise of new administration, which is likely going to be much more conservative, which is likely going to have much closer links to the Revolutionary Guard Corps, and which is going to be even more skeptical of the value of a new deal. Yeah. And, you know, to me, it's just, it's another example of a damage that Trump has done in office. And, you know, a big part of his brand is supposedly that he opposed the overextension of American power in the Middle East, right? So he was, a, you know, he's well, he claims he was against the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan from the beginning, but, you know, he's been sort of very skeptical of, of military intervention. But in his own way, he's overextended America in the Middle East again by backing out of this agreement in pursuit of, of some non-existent alternative perfect agreement and, and done away with what goodwill that, that America had in Tehran. <laughs>
Yeah, and I suppose then this then begs the question of why the Middle East as a region is important to the United States. And I think that there's kind of two and a half reasons for that, in my view. So one of them is the presence of Israel, right? So Israel is a country which has a great deal of domestic support in the United States. And, you know, there's many, many political actors in the U.S. who who view Israel's interests as very worth protecting. Then there's oil, right? And so um, about a week or so ago, I read this interesting piece by Matthew Iglesias where he said that kind of there's this weird rule about debating the role of oil in U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East that on the one hand, you're not supposed to say that it's about oil. But on the other hand, if you say, you know, why do we care about this region, then that makes you naive because you kind of ignoring the fact that the region is full of oil, right? And we all we all recognize that that this is a big reason for um for U.S. interest in the Middle East. But you know, something that we've heard increasingly in recent years, especially as kind of America's energy economy has changed and America's become a net exporter of oil, is that it this what's seen as an overinvestment of American foreign policy in the Middle East is no longer warranted because its oil is no longer as important to the American economy as it used to be. Another prong to this argument uh, we could say is kind of a, a supply side one, which says that Middle Eastern economies are much more dependent on the oil trade than America is on their oil. And so it would be suicidal for them to cause any significant disruption to that trade. So basically, you know, this argument is saying that it really doesn't matter to the United States which regimes are in control of these oil supplies in the Middle East because they are always going to want to sell that oil. What's your view on the importance of the Middle East and access to its oil supplies and particularly the validity of of worrying about this so-called oil weapon, which is the power of the oil producing countries to disrupt supply in a way that disrupts Western economies? So your question is a, it's a very good question. I think it's one that's going to dominate discussions of U.S. policy in the Middle East for the least in, ever, in the next several decades. It's going to take a while. Your first question, does Middle East oil still matter to the United States? It's been generally true going back to the 1970s, which is when this became an important pressing matter, that the U.S. itself doesn't import that much oil from the Middle East. It's generally only made up somewhere between 5 and 15 percent of U.S. energy uh, as a general share of U.S. imports. It's always remained more or less the same. And that has as much to do with geography as it has to do with anything else. There's always been other sources of oil that have been cheaper to access, that have been more, you know, that have been closer by. The importance of Middle East to the United States is linked to its importance to the global oil market as a whole. Middle East oil has been and will likely continue to be the cheapest oil that is accessible for major consumers. And that originally was Western Europe and Japan. Increasingly, that is China and the other major East Asian economies. And that's going to remain the case. So in that sense, Middle East oil matters and will continue to matter as it has in the past. The question is whether or not the United States should care. The other issue you bring up is increasing U.S. oil production. It's seen a dramatic resurgence in U.S. crude and particularly natural gas production uh, due to what's known as the shale revolution or the fracking revolution. The United States now produces more oil than it ever has in the past. Um, I would push back on your characterization of the United States as a net exporter. Uh, they were brief 
moments in 2019 and 2020, or really, sorry, in 2019, where the United States exported more oil than it imported. But generally speaking, the United States remains dependent on imported oil and will so will do so for the immediate future, if not forever. The other question is, even with this surge in domestic production, does the United States still need oil from overseas? And here, the question of quality matters a great deal. The U.S. produces a great deal of oil which fits certain chemical characteristics, but it needs oil that comes from other regions, which is heavier in sulfur, which is known as sour or heavy crude. Um, so while the crude that we produce meets some of our requirements, we're always going to need oil from other sources that meet these other requirements. Now I want to loop back to the bigger question, sort of strategic question that you asked before, which is, does Middle East oil matter and should the United States care? Before we do that, could, could you just address the, the, the final point of this critique, which I've always found to be the strongest, which is the one that says that the economic of impo importance of oil to these regimes in the Middle East is always going to be so great that it would be suicidal for them to disrupt the flow of oil on a long-term basis. So, you know, isn't there an argument for saying that it doesn't really matter to the United States what the character of Middle Eastern regimes is? Because whatever they are, they're always going to need to sell oil. Sure. So this gets to the oil weapon question, which you mentioned before. Um, the oil weapon refers to the oil producer's ability to shut off access to oil at specific times and in pursuit of specific objectives. And this has really only happened once during the 1973-1974 uh, oil shock, where a number of Arab oil producers uh, implemented an embargo of the United States and then began cutting production as a way of pressuring the United States into abandoning its support of Israel during the October War. The oil weapon question has triggered a lot of debate. I tend to agree with your point that petroleum producers are unlikely to cut off access uh, on purpose because of this dependence that you note. But whether or not disruptions happen, it doesn't always connect to political intent, right? So an important example to look at would be Iraq's invasion of Kuwait in 1990, of August of 1990. The reason why the United States reacted the way it did to Iraq's invasion of Kuwait was not because Iraq was threatening to cut off access. The reason why the United States reacted the way it did was because of the threat posed by having an actor like Iraq, like Saddam Hussein's Iraq, control at that time 20% of global oil. For the United States, that appeared to be a strategically untenable situation. So this question of whether or not the oil weapon will be used isn't always relevant. The more relevant issue is, is the United States comfortable with having a potentially hostile power control a larger portion of global oil reserves, or is it comfortable with having states that may or may not slip into periods of instability as a result then have their oil become inaccessible? And I would add then that what's created a greater sense of comfort over this volatility has been oil's general abundance in the last decade. You know, a lot of us grew up in the age of peak oil, right, in the early 2000s, where we were all concerned about oil running out. And as we move further into the 21st century, what we're going to see is more and more oil becoming uneconomic, more and more oil being shut off and locked away because it can't be sold because it's simply too expensive. And does that matter insofar as the Middle East is concerned? I would pivot back to my original point, which is that the Middle East possesses the cheapest and most accessible reserves. The oil of the Middle East will continue to be competitive with other sources of energy going into the 21st century, even as 
the world likely shift towards renewable energy and uh, lessens the dependence on fossil fuels and oil. From that point of view, the oil of the Middle East will continue to matter, and the United States will likely continue to see an interest in the Middle East and in maintaining access to that oil. So we're going to see how the Biden administration handles this. Uh, we'll be talking about it a lot more on the show in the future. And I want to thank you, Greg, for, for turning up and giving us your insights. Absolutely, Andy. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Janice Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time.